Hello everyone and uh, a warm welcome to, to today's edition of the Language Matters podcast. And uh, I am delighted once again to be hosting Natasha Shrikant. And um, I think Natasha will do a very good job to introduce herself than I will. So Natasha, if you can just tell our listeners who you are, it will be great. Yes. Uh, hi, thank you for having me um, on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here and think it's really great work that you're doing. So um, like you said, I'm uh, Natasha Shrikant. I'm a assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Department of Communication. Um, but I do study a lot of social interaction and language use, uh, particularly, and I've worked with nonprofit organizations in multicultural contexts. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Hmm. Interesting. I think you'll tell us more as time as time goes on. But yes. uh, I think we're keen, my listeners and myself are keen to find out the kind of work you've been doing. I mean, you're a linguist, but what specifically do you look at as a linguist who will be yes. to hear that? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, I, uh, the well, usually those of us who study uh, language, um, the, we focus on a particular kind of strategy or linguistic device. Um, and what I focus on is membership categorization. And that's the ways that people use different identity categories in interaction. And then I can study the ways that people use categories in interaction to find out how the ways people use categories displays their understandings about different identities and the relationships among them. Um, so more specifically, I study categorization in multicultural, multiracial, multilingual business contexts, and that helps me provide insight into how diverse organizations operate. And then this can help to decenter whiteness and showing how mostly white homogenous organizations, it can show them, oh, like these are the ways that just going about your everyday lives, um, and these are maybe implicit practices that mark you as white or as seeming not inclusive, even if all the individuals in the organization are really nice. So for example, um, one of the bigger projects that I've done is spending time um, observing chambers of commerce in Texas. Um, and one of the chambers of commerce I observed, and this was over a period of eight months, was an Asian American chamber of commerce. Uh, and this chamber included recent immigrants from 22 different countries in the United States that count as Asian. So this includes people from East Asia, like China and Korea, people from South Asia, like India and Pakistan, and people from Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and the Philippines. Um, so what this meant is within this one chamber of commerce, there was a variety of languages, cultures, and religions all working together. Um, and then they had to adopt this one label, Asian. Um, because when they came to the United States, local politicians said, oh, all of you are Asian. You should start this chamber so you can network with business and we can all talk to all of you Asians when we want votes and things like that. So they're kind of in this multicultural context, but having to be under one label yet acknowledge all their differences. So oftentimes in the organization, people would very overtly and directly use ethnic and racial categories. So they'd say, oh, you're Korean, you should connect with this other Korean person so you can you know, build your businesses together. Or they'd say, oh, the airport is looking for someone to plan an event to celebrate their direct flight to Beijing. You're Chinese, you should apply so then you can get paid to plan this whole rollout for the direct flight. And so they'd oftentimes use racial and ethnic categories, but particularly to meet business aims and not necessarily just to talk about culture or differences. Um, and then when talking to people outside of their organization, they would just say, oh, 
we're Asian because that's a common sense racial category alongside white and black in the United States. So they say, oh, we're the Asian chamber. Um, we work well with the black chamber on certain things. And um, we work with the Latinx chamber on other things. Um, so leaders would often discuss how Asians support other Asians or how Asians work with other ethnic groups. And then there were times where members would say, oh, Asian really isn't important here. What's really important is that we both work in tech and we should work as like business people who work in tech. So oftentimes, whether people were denying the relevance of race or trying to talk about Asian as being really important to them or trying to acknowledge differences among one another in their community, they would use routinely all of these ethnic and racial categories. And then when I would attend diversity events, like so larger corporation would host diversity events where the chambers of commerce would go. And even in these diversity events, larger corporations would say, you know, um, we need more Asians in our organization. We value diverse people. And they would often talk very overtly and use specific categories when they were trying to recruit people and show that they care about diversity. So the other chamber of commerce I spent time with was a mostly white chamber of commerce. It had mostly white people. They were from the local Texas area um, and there was no use of racial categories. And the categories that got used in their everyday interaction were more institutional roles like CEO or lawyer or business person. Um, and there were some instances where naming racial categories out loud was actively resisted. Like they're like, oh, we're open to everyone. We don't talk about that. And this was for purposes of being open. The organization was open to everyone. Like anyone could show up and join if they were looking to grow their business and wanted to join a chamber of commerce to help themselves network. Um, but, and the people were the nicest people and I had such a wonderful time observing them. But as we can see from my observations of the other chamber and the bigger organizations, the norm in this Texan community was to show that you support diversity through overtly naming categories and saying, we want these categories of people, we value like diversifying through having more African-Americans in our organization, having more Latinx people, having more Asian-Americans. And this organization wasn't naming those categories and they all looked white and the organization was located in an affluent whiter part of town. So all of these things together kind of made them seem like a white organization, even though that wasn't their intention and it's not something that was a criteria for entry. Um, so I look at, so comparing just the norms of using categories kind of helps pull out broader, maybe cultural norms and differences, um, because in the Asian American chamber, because it was so diverse with people from so many countries, there was a shared understanding in the organization that everyone came from different backgrounds, but everyone was interested in business. Where in the most white organization, everyone who were members were not only white, but also from local Texans who shared a lot of place-based cultural values, like a you know, just Texan things. And so the interactions reflected this and probably contributed to the white organization staying mostly white and the Asian American organization seeming more open just because there's so many different kinds of people and they're constantly accommodating for it. And then of course you have this broader kind of racialized community in Texas because Texas was a place where there were there is legacy there was slavery and there's legacies of segregation. And so you have that kind of so it's a lot to fight against. And so I would think in everyday interaction, when you overtly have to say, we value this, we care about this, we want to change the makeup of our organization, part of it stems from that history of you need to overtly say, we care about this. And if you don't say it, um, then you don't do it. Um, so it was it was a really interesting thing how something as small as categorization could tease out, um, you could tease it out to think about diversity in the business community and how changing categorization might be something a business might not think about to change. But if they do, it would make a big difference in showing that they value diversity um, if, if the, that's what the business wants to do.
That is so interesting, Natasha. So, it, I mean, if we could sum up all that you've said, you basically use linguistic tools or methods like observation and analyze interaction to show how an organization is really walking their talk when it, in terms of diversity and inclusion. You know, and I think that is really key at this juncture because most organizations are talking about the fact that they want to be diverse, they want to be inclusive, but are you actually doing that? You know, and it's interesting how you touch on interaction and how that can reveal deeper levels of prejudice, of racism, of all this categorization that people don't really pay attention to. So that's, that's really, really interesting. Um, uh, work that you're doing. So if a diversity manager or somebody who's involved, somebody who's not a linguist, a lay person is listening to us, somebody in charge of diversity in their organization, and they are thinking, mm, is this a good thing to do? Is this a good thing to, is this a good uh, method to add to what I'm currently doing? What would you say to them? One, one or two words you will say to any, anybody in charge of diversity in the organizations to let them know how linguistics can support the already um, processes or initiatives that they have in place. Yes, so I would say if like the two words, I'd say collaborate with researchers. Um, and to expand on that, it's just so I spent eight months with each of these organizations and I built great working relationships and personal relationships. And I was able to find things that I didn't know I was going to find. Like I didn't know it would be categorization, even though now maybe it seems obvious after the fact, but you know, and I don't think anyone in the organizations would have said, oh, we have a problem with the ways we use categories because people are trying to do their jobs. They're going about their every day. They're doing their best to be nice. So, you know, I, a lot of times when I think about diversity trainings and things that diversity managers are doing, I do see the value in, you know, we want something to change quickly, you do a training and you focus on a particular skill. Um, but there is a huge value in having someone observe the organization, interview people, spend some time with that organization. And you can still get quick results because early on you can have conversations about what people are noticing and use it for a training. And then as a person stays with your organization longer, they can develop results that actually help an organization make long-term change. And then I do think that these official partnerships, um, then you can fund them with money, with grant money. So that's just from a more, from a money perspective when thinking, oh, I'm spending all this time with a diversity consultant. There are grants in academia that support diversity research or research ethnographic spending time with organizations more generally. And there are like government and city grants that are really, really interested in these kinds of, this kind of work as well. So I would say that building relationships with the researcher is really important because I think that each organization operates a little bit differently. Um, and, and, and if you really want to make change in your organization, you should have it tailored to the kinds of things you're doing and the kinds of leadership style and organizational culture and goals that you have. Mm. And that's when, I mean, like you rightly said, if you're used to doing something or you're commonly doing something, you, you are easily, you tend to be blind to certain things. But an insider come, comes in and they can easily spot some of these things that you are missing. I think this is very great content. We, we need to do a LinkedIn Live <laughs> on this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I think the other thing too that is coming from what you're saying is that diversity and inclusion equity has to be the culture of an organization. So it's not just saying it, but it has to be part of what you do 
as an organization. And one way of making sure that this is actually part of what you do is to have someone, an outsider, just look at what you're currently doing and say, this is not part of this. This is the missing link. This is what you can do to, 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 to improve your efforts and really make your organization more diverse. Well, so um, zooming on, on to moving on from, from, from that, from the linguistic aspect and the, the corporate aspect. I, I, you, um, you have this wonderful group going on that talks about some of these issues and that needs to get into the wider domain, you know? So if you could just share more light on what you do as a group, how people can contact you, you know, and um, where to find you, all that. So it's the, the floor is yours, Natasha. Let, let people know about the good work you're doing. Yeah, um, yeah thank you. I'm really excited actually to share about this group. So this group, it's, it's a long name. It's called Ethnomethodology and Conversation Analysis for Racial Justice. And for short, we call it EMCA4RJ. And that is our Twitter handle, EMCA4RJ. Um, that's probably the easiest way to um, contact us. And I'll tell you more about contact in a minute. But this organization is more about how I and a bunch of committed scholars in our field are communally working together to change the racial diversity or just diverse makeup of our workplace. So those of us who are um, working in academia and we study language as it occurs in social interaction with one another, um, like many workplaces, there's a tradition in our field of being mostly white. And we're a very international field, but many of our members are white Western members, so European, US American members. Um, and so in our group, we're attempting to change common practices in our workplace to then help make the workplace more inclusive. So one thing that we often do in our, um, as a practice is something called a data session, which is a place where let's say, for example, I went and I'm working with an organization and I've recorded a lot of their data and then I wanna analyze their data. I can bring it to a data session where other scholars in my field can listen to it and look at the transcripts and help do an analysis and help me answer questions that I'm interested in answering about race or categorization or racism. Um, and traditionally these data sessions haven't used data that talks about race or racism. They haven't used data from diverse places. It's been just upper middle-class white US American people that have been analyzed. And the field in some ways started as a field that said that they aren't a political field. So they don't deal with issues like inequality or racism. And they're looking more specifically about very micro practices of how we agree or disagree with people or how long of a pause indicates that it's someone else's turn to talk or why and how people gasp in different situations. And that's really, really fascinating work. Um, but what happens when that work gets focused is that other work that's more interested in studying things like race or gender inequality or intersections among them um, tends to be seen as not really viable in the community. So what we do in our data sessions is we use data that's really diverse um, and that talks about issues of racism. Um, and we also tend to center more broadly just scholars um, who might be scholars of color or minorities who are doing work on race and racism. Um, and so we're hoping that through changing that one particular practice of the data session, which is honestly where people learn what the field is, they get excited about the field. So if we can focus on data where race and ethnicity is involved um, and try to see how EMCA tools can help us reveal interesting things around those questions, we can help socialize new scholars into this community, looking at social interaction closely and looking at ways that social interaction is wrapped up in, 
important things like race or gender inequality in the workplace or in other places. Um, so we hope that making scholars visible and creating a space for scholars interested in these questions can help make our workplace more diverse and equitable. So we, um, we do have uh, a website, um, but I think the easiest might be you can email me. Um, I'm at University of Colorado Boulder, my email, and you know I also have a Twitter and things like that. So you can look me up and you can send me an email if you're interested in getting involved. Um, if you're a business person or a diversity manager, many of the people in this group do work um, look, look with organizations, looking at race, looking at how it happens in everyday interaction in the workplace and can give you um, some specific suggestions uh, about things as well. So it's a good group to contact for resources um, for consults as well. Thank you. I mean, I think this couldn't have come at a much better time than it is now because the focus really now is to get uh, issues around race and equity addressed and addressed properly to ensure that everybody feels comfortable and organizations really do get the benefits associated with uh, diversity. And I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion, one thing that we do talk about as linguists also is inclusive language. You know, and I'm just wondering, is that also part of what you guys look at? How organizations can ensure that their language is inclusive and it doesn't um, kind of this, going back to these categories, you know, language yeah. <laughs> is not offensive to other groups of people. Do, do you do stuff like that? And what can organizations do to ensure that they're using language that is inclusive? I think that when it comes to, when it comes to inclusive language, um, organizations should really value the knowledge and experience of the of the minority members of their organization. So if there's someone in your organization that's a minority member and says, hey, I really don't like when we use the term gang up on people or when we use the, you know, the term, I think you and I had talked about this, about tribes and like that being a way to indicate different groups um, because tribe has a history of being very important to communities and, you know, and a history of colonialism and, and, and genocide against tribe. And now we use tribes as like a fun way to, you know, set up set up different groups, like I, and an organization saying, yes, okay, we can change that. And I often think that when it comes to changing language use, it's something that is relatively small. Like some people dismiss it, like, oh, there are bigger problems than language. But then at the same time, people are very resistant to changing the things they say and do every day. And they say, oh, well, my intention is that I'm using tribe like this instead of that. Or my intention is that I'm, you know, and, and I think that we need to separate intent from effect, right? So you might have good intentions, but if it hurts someone else's feelings at the very basic level, or if it is, as, or someone tells you that's a way that racism happens in very implicit ways, um, then change it. And it's not a huge deal. And I think, and with inclusive language, it's always a work in progress. Like even I personally, like there's things that I, you know, I used to say, I don't say anymore. And something as somebody studies social interaction generally, if you look at, conversations all the time. People are making choices and what to say, what's more reasonable, what's less reasonable, what's appropriate, what's not. Like, do I need to seem smarter in the workplace, funny when I give my office toast, like caring when I'm with my family and you speak in different ways at different times. And so we're constantly doing the self-monitoring subconsciously. Um, and so doing that for inclusive language is just another, to me, another way of being, being mindful and making a choice of you know, trying to say something more reasonable 
are more appropriate, like we do all the time in, in many contexts. Thank you, Natasha, you for sharing um, your time and your, your resources and your expertise as well, you know, and throwing light on this uh, very important subject uh, currently. Well, so I, I think it's time to let you go. But before you go, if you have a word to anyone listening to us, um, diversity managers or linguists like us, anyone, what, what, just one thing you want to say to close us, you know, something that would help us remember this session that we listened to and maybe go back and listen to it again. Um, I guess diversity is, tied to language, and it's a very pervasive thing that is not separate. It's part and parcel of everyday life and can't be thought of as separately. Um, and so to really think about language use in everyday interaction in the workplace or otherwise as connected uh, to race and diversity and inclusion. Um, and one of the ways that happens is through the ways we use categories in the workplace. And um, there's many other kinds of strategies that I think listening to other episodes in this podcast um, can help shed light on. Thank you so much. It's, it's been lovely talking to you. And definitely, like I said, we'll have to do a LinkedIn Live. <laughs> of course, I would definitely, I would be up for that. That sounds great. <laughs> we'll have to do a LinkedIn Live, but thank you. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank a big thank you to our listeners as well who, who, who are listening and they should keep the comments coming. You know, it would be nice for us if they have any questions, you know, they can go to the comment section and, and ask a question. And you can find Natasha on LinkedIn as well. So if you have any questions, you said something that you didn't truly get, or you think you want more explanation from, send her an email, look her up on LinkedIn, follow her on Twitter, and then keep the conversation going. So thank you so much, Natasha, and looking forward to speaking with you soon. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye.